left yet for Children's Church. This would be the time to do it. I don't know if you have or not. Okay, there we go. I was looking at this title for this sermon, and I thought maybe this might be more appropriate next week, late but right on time, because next week we set the clocks back an hour, so you could be late next week, and you might be on time. (laughs) However that works, I always get that messed up how that works. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we come around God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking at John 11 here in a moment, so keep your Bibles open to that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for uh, it is God-breathed. Everything we have recorded for us here is exactly what you wanted for us to have. So may we listen. May we take heed. It's not words of men. Words from your very mouth. Speak to our ears. Speak to our hearts myself included. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. A golfer who had been playing badly went to see a psychiatrist who told him to relax by playing a round of golf without a ball. Do everything you would normally do, but use an imaginary ball, advised the psychiatrist. So the golfer tried that the next day. He stepped up on the first tee without a ball and imagined he got a 260-yard drive, made a fine approach shot to the green, and then parted for par. The round went splendidly, and as he approached the 18th hole, he met another golfer playing the same way, no ball. Apparently, he had the same psychiatrist and was following the same advice. So they decided to play the last hole together and bet $10 on the outcome. (laughs) The first golfer swung at his imaginary ball and announced that it had gone 280 yards right down the middle of the fairway. The second golfer matched his drive. The first guy then took out his five iron, and after swinging at an imaginary ball, he exclaimed, look at that shot, will you? It went right over the pin, and then reverse spin on it, brought it back right into the hole. I win. No, you don't, said the second golfer. You hit my ball. (laughs) T.S. Eliot, who said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. That is particularly true when it comes to the subject of death. The shocking reality is that in terms of death and destiny, we have absolutely no control. We can jog. We can take vitamins. We can go to the gym. We can eat right. We can watch our cholesterol. But there awaits us all death. One out of every one person dies. That is a reality we cannot ignore. I believe it was Woody Allen who said, I am not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> well, two kids were talking and one said to the other, wouldn't it be nice to know the time and place that you were going to die? And the other replied, what good would that do? And the first one answered, well, I wouldn't show up. <laughs> Guess what? There's no such thing as avoiding death. 
Many are uncomfortable talking about death. Bring it up around the coffee pot or at the dinner table among friends and likely there will be an immediate tension in the air that you could cut with a knife. Death is agonizingly real. And that is what hits Martha and Mary when their brother Lazarus died in the first century. In our present sermon series, we're looking at what we can learn from Jesus and his interactions with people. Today, we see Jesus confronted with the reality of death and its hardship and pain it brings on the survivors. We find Jesus not avoiding the subject of death, but rather entered the world of the grieving, the hurting, those who experience loss. We see once again what moves the very heart of Jesus. And may what moves his heart move our hearts. The story recorded for us in John chapter 11 ought to elevate our perspective. If we are to find our way through the difficulties we encounter in life and help others in their times of loss, then we will need to see problems from above rather than from ground level, for that makes all the difference in the world. The bottom line truth for you to take with you this morning is this. God's timing is perfect even when he appears catastrophically late. God's timing is perfect even when he appears catastrophically late. Well, let's dive into our text this morning in John chapter 11. Look with me at John chapter 11. And there are three overriding observations to be made regarding this passage. The first observation has to do with the delay of love. With the delay of love. Now, I want to take you back to the verses that weren't read this morning at the beginning of chapter 11. And so follow along as I read verses 1 through 3, John 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, a reoccurring theme in this section of Scripture is the fact of Jesus' love for this family of three. It seems apparent that Jesus would spend time with this family when ministering in Jerusalem. It was the place where Jesus could relax and, and kind of put up his feet and take a nap and enjoy telling stories and jokes around the dinner table. Other than the 12 disciples, these are the ones Jesus was closest to. Now the sisters here didn't demand Jesus come. They didn't have to. It wasn't even a request. It was assumed that Jesus would come. It was inconceivable to think otherwise. Now what happens next is absolutely remarkable. Look at verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now our translations don't quite say it strong enough in line with the original. This is how it's said in the original. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Then it should say, therefore. 
Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, because he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, therefore, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days. Incredible. It makes no sense. He loved them so much that he stayed away two more days. Now, one can only imagine what must have been like for this family as they waited for Jesus to arrive. Each time the sisters heard footsteps leading to their door, they would say, Lazarus, Jesus is coming. But Jesus didn't show up. Mary's hand would be grabbing her brother's hand, and she'd say, Lazarus, hang on. Jesus is coming. Jesus never showed up. The sisters must have said to each other in the other room, I wonder what's taking him so long. And while the sisters sat vigilantly at his bedside, Lazarus closed his eyes and he was gone. And Jesus never showed up. How can this be? Doesn't Jesus care? And so they wrapped Lazarus in grave clothes and planned a funeral. Jesus didn't even attend the funeral. Is Jesus that busy? He couldn't come back to the one he loved. Was it so necessary that he perform miracles on strangers and yet couldn't break away to visit his friends and, and a friend who was sick? I thought Jesus loved us. Why would he abandon us like this? It's in times like this that it's difficult to believe that God is good. I mean, you plan this big outreach event and it falls through. There's a false accusation that, that ruins and destroys a family. A child dies in a parent's arms. A spouse cheats. A child falls away. You lose your job. Your friends turn against you. You get picked on at school. The church family isn't there when you needed them most. And on and on it goes. And it is times like this that one concludes that either God can't do anything about the situation or he can do something about the situation, but he chooses not to. He doesn't care. And Jesus does eventually show up here, but he's late. Lazarus is very dead. Look at verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, unless I miss my calculation, even if Jesus showed up two days earlier, Lazarus would have still been dead. So what difference would it have made if he came right off and without delay, I mean dead as dead? Well, we need to understand something about that culture. When a person was thought to be dead, they didn't wait until some professional came to pronounce them dead, and sometimes they might be mistaken. <laughs> the person might actually be alive when they're trying to bury them. That would be kind of unnerving. But it happened. And they would immediately bury the person. They didn't drag it out. And there was this theory in that day that for the first two days, the spirit hadn't left but would hang around the deceased person for two or perhaps even three days. There was a three-day limit, and it was believed that then death was irreversible. And John, in this chapter, you will notice, emphasizes that Lazarus was dead for four days. 
That's important. Now, I'm not suggesting this was sound theology or that Jesus even believed that theory. He didn't. But by waiting for four days, it made the raising of Lazarus that much more spectacular to all the witnesses of that event. You see? But from ground-level perspective, and because the text is forceful in its wording, Jesus, out of love, delayed coming. Grab that. And the sisters get word that Jesus is now coming. And Mary stays back at the house and cries, while Martha Stewart stays active. Well, I mean Martha. It's not Martha Stewart. Excuse me. <laughs> it's kind of her way of dealing with grief. She's gone and be on the move. We kind of grieve in our own way. Please note that. God deals with each of them individually, respecting them as people. And Martha, true to form, leaves the house. She's got to stay busy here, and she's going to go meet Jesus. She finds Jesus, and she comes out with it in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's what she supposed. Later on, Mary asks the same question. Mary, in classic form, falls at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have, been, have died. It seems the two sisters have had this conversation about Jesus' lateness. Use the same exact words. These words here that they speak are not spoken in a nasty way. It's their cry of anguish as they live with if only. If only. Do you know the feeling? Lord, if you had been here four days earlier, I wouldn't have had to fret my way through that exam. Lord, if you had been here earlier, I wouldn't have had to pace the floor and worry over whether my child would make it or not. Lord, why did you show up after I wept all night? Why did you show up after I sweated out that medical bill? After I was so stressed out, I was about to snap. Why did you show up four days late, Lord? If only, Lord. Have any of those? Jesus' delay is a delay of love. How do you do with delays? <laughs> a reoccurring issue with my five-year-old is that she wants everything now. We talk about something fun we're going to do in a few days. She wants to do it now. She wants to eat now. She wants her snack now. She wants to open that present now. And I'm so glad we grow out of that, huh? We live in a fast-paced world where things happen in a split second. I hit send, and it's on your computer or your BlackBerry, your cell phone. Just like that. I place a sheet of paper in the fax machine, dial a number, and those words somehow float through cyberspace and show up on a clean page on your fax machine. I don't get it. If I need a little cash, I can go to that little money machine and get some instant cash. Delay? I click on search, and if it doesn't bring up all the results in less than five seconds, I'm complaining to my wife how slow my computer is. We need a new one, honey. It's taking five seconds. This is slow. We want it now. We want God's blessings now. And perhaps there's no greater challenge to our faith than that of timing, which doesn't fit our preconceived notions. God's ways are not our 
ways. This time is different. A young man once asked God how long a million years was to him. And God replied, a million years to me is just like a single second in your time. Whoa. Then the young man asked God what a million dollars was to him. And God replied, a million dollars to me is just like a single penny to you. So the man got up his courage and he asked, hey, could I have one of those pennies? <laughs> and God said, sure, in a second. <laughs> We want it now. We don't understand this delay thing. Sometimes God, out of love, treats us to a good dose of delay. And what can delay bring? It can change our perspective. His delays of love are opportunities to learn some things we wouldn't learn otherwise. His delay of love just might be because he has something even more spectacular to show us. God's timing is perfect, even when he appears catastrophically late. Well, secondly, a second observation, not only is delay of love, but a second observation is that as he comes up against a devastating loss and soul's grief, he does so by diverting attention to himself. He diverts attention to himself. We see this in the dialogue between Jesus and Martha. We pick it up in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now Martha is thinking in generalities of a future resurrection. Martha's theology was sound. She knew and believed in the resurrection. She knew that Christ had the power to raise Lazarus at the last day. She is thinking, however, doctrine. What does Jesus do? Jesus brings her back to a present reality. Jesus directs her to a belief in a person. He says to her in verse 25, Jesus says, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now notice here, Jesus doesn't say to Martha in her grief, I'm sure that the local synagogue can help you with food for the weeks to come. He doesn't say, I'm sure there's a support group in the area that can help you in your grieving. He doesn't say, I'm sure you'll have fond memories of Lazarus. Now I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm not saying they're not even helpful. But in being like Jesus, we ought to do what he does here. He diverts attention to himself. What do people need more than anything else when they face death or loss? Jesus. And if we're going to talk about death, we should talk about Jesus and his life-giving power. Help others focus on Jesus. Divert people to Jesus, for he's the life-giver. Jesus is saying, without me, there is no resurrection. Without me, there is no life. And that's the greatest piece of news that could ever fall on our ears. It's the greatest piece of news that ever hit the world. See, salvation doesn't come in a system. Salvation doesn't come in a religion, whether you're Baptist or Catholic or Methodist or independent. It doesn't matter. You'll not have victory over death by going to church or by thinking positive thoughts or by being a good person or because you even grew up in a Christian home. 
A teacher asked her class of youngsters, what does it mean to be a Christian? And a little boy raised his hand and answered, I don't know, but I think it runs in my family. (laughs) You know what? It doesn't matter if it runs in your family. I mean, that helps, but you better not be banking on that. Salvation comes in a living person, Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. The question you must answer is the same as Martha's. Jesus turned to her and asked, do you believe this? End of verse 26. Do you believe this? Jesus speaks in the present. Jesus isn't saying, I will resurrect others in the future. He says, I am the resurrection. He doesn't say, someday I'll give you life. He says, I am the life now. It's this truth that can settle your soul today. The same Jesus who will raise us up in the future and take us with him for all of eternity is the same one who can handle our problems in the present. It is as Oswald Chambers has said, God is present now, dancing on the chaos of my life. What's overwhelming you with sorrow right now? What is it that's just kind of sucked the life right out of you? In what way has your faith lost its vibrancy and your orthodoxy is correct and sound, but it doesn't stir the heart? What if only, be honest, what if only is keeping you from the front lines of ministry? Do you need a fresh view of Jesus Christ right now? A soldier in World War I was so distraught with the war that he deserted. He tried to find his way back to the coast so he could catch a boat and make his way back incognito to his homeland in England. In the darkness of the night, he stumbled on a road sign, and it was so pitch black and he was so lost, he had no idea where he was or what the sign said. So he decided to climb the pole of that sign. When he got to the cross beam, he held on to read the sign and he, he took out a match and he lit it and he looked as he did at the sign, but what he was looking at was directly in the face of Jesus. You see, he had climbed an outdoor crucifix. He was looking in the face of the one who had endured it all and had never turned back. And stunned by what he saw, he realized the shame of his life. And the next morning, the soldier was back in the trenches. May your sorrow, may my sorrow, and our disappointment, our if only, lead us to seeing his face. Perhaps out of love, he's treating you to a good dose of delay. Perhaps out of love, he wants to use it, the sorrow in your life, to drive you to see Jesus in a new light, to stir your heart again because it's about to go out. It's a third observation I want to make, and that is Jesus displays his sorrow and sovereignty over death. He displays his sorrow and sovereignty over death. In verse 33, we find what moves the heart of Jesus Here's a cold scene of death that is totally worn by the love of Jesus. It says, verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. They were, this was loud wailing, loud weeping. It says that when Jesus saw this, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, when it says and speaks of Jesus being deeply moved in spirit, it carries the idea of being angered, agitated, or indignant. Saying that Jesus is outraged 
would not be too far off. Why would Jesus be outraged? What angered Jesus here? The context would suggest that it's not directed at Martha and Mary. Likely what he is outraged about is that this was not the way it was supposed to be. One more funeral, one more death, one more example of the sheer ugliness of sin's results. We were built to live forever. And Jesus is outraged over the pain and sorrow that sin causes. We should be outraged by death. Each funeral we attend is another example of sin's cause. Death is the last enemy. But thank God it's not the last word. Jesus enters their world of grief. And not only was he outraged, but the text says he was troubled. Or better translated, he troubled himself. In other words, he let himself care. And Jesus does what many men are afraid to do. In verse 35, he weeps. Tears begin to roll down his cheeks. They were spontaneous. They were real. He couldn't hold them back. I'm surprised by this because I know that Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus. That Lazarus is going to come out of the grave in three minutes. Lazarus is going to, is going to be standing there and talking with them in just a few minutes. He could have just shook his head, had a slight smirk on his face, and said, no, no need to cry, folks. I'm going to raise him. Jesus weeps. I don't know about you, but that thrills my heart. Jesus understands grief. My grief, your grief. He let his heart be ripped by their pain and sorrow. Why? Because he wanted to feel every pain you've ever felt. So when you stand at the grave of that one you love more than any other person in the world, Jesus can say, I know, I know. When you silently suffer over not being able to see that child who never made it to full term, or when you stand and look on as all your possessions and everything you ever owned go up in smoke, Jesus says, I know, I know. When you feel the pain of seeing your last child off to college and when your heart is being ripped out by a breakup, when you lose physical capabilities you once enjoyed, and when you feel the loss of a smashed dream or the loss of income or the loss, loss of familiar surroundings, Jesus says, I know, I know. What can we learn here about relationships? Don't pass by those who are grieving. Learn to see the losses of others as they pass by. Not just death, a lot of other categories of loss. Enter into others' world of grief. Don't avoid the hurting. I don't know what I'm going to say. Don't say anything then. Cry with them. Loss gives opportunity for his comfort to overflow. The others standing there watching this display of sorrow over death share their take on what they see. One group standing there in verse 36 to see how much he loved him. That's true, but they didn't get the whole point. Others in the crowd give their two cents in verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? In other words, when you really need him most, he's not here. What both groups missed 
was what was happening before their eyes was the greatest demonstration of his love. There's something much bigger going on here than ministering to this one family whom Jesus had a close relationship with and loved. For the sake of the greatest love to the greatest number, Jesus showed the glory of God and raised Lazarus from the dead. And because of Jesus' delay, more people would witness the power of Christ over death. We didn't see the whole picture. God was right on time. He always is. God's timing is perfect even when he appears catastrophically late because Jesus has the biggest big picture in view. When we see our problems from above rather than from ground level, it makes all the difference in the world. In June 1815, the English military forces under the Duke of Wellington engages the forces of Napoleon. All England awaited news of the outcome. It was before the days of fast communication, so the message would be sent from a boat by a signaling device using a code. Watches were stationed along England's coast to observe the sailing vessels coming up the channel. Knowing the battle was to be fought, the coastal sentries waited for a message of its outcome. Finally, a watcher noted a message being waved from a passing boat. It said, Wellington defeated. And then the fog closed in. The words were relayed across England, and the nation was plunged into gloom. After some delay, when the fog cleared again, another sailor on another boat waved the same message, this time without interruption. It said, Wellington defeated the enemy. And England's sorrow was driven away, and the entire country went wild with joy. Isn't that how it often is in the Christian life? Defeated. The fog closes in. Delay. What you may read as defeat may simply be that you don't have all the information. Stay tuned. Things may not be as they first appear. God may seem late, but it's only as the fog lifts do we realize that his arrival was at the precise moment necessary to fulfill the purposes of God. And I can safely say this. And when he does, it will be something more spectacular than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Lord, Anyone who knows me knows how much I hate to wait. I hate delay. And yet, how many lessons have I not learned because of my impatience? And how many lessons are out there for me to learn because of the delay of love? change our perspective, elevate our perspective and help us, God, to be able to say no matter what sorrows may be crashing in on us right now that we can honestly say before you it is well with our soul. Because you're taking care of that and you're the overseer of our souls. We give that to you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.